You're listening to After Images, a podcast for cinephiles that takes a deep dive into moving images. Each episode features a special guest who is invited to explore a film of their choice. After Images is hosted by film writers Franck Bouleg and Marisa C. Hayes. Today's episode features Danish film scholar Andreas Halsko in a discussion of Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Released in 1975, the Oscar-winning film is based on Ken Kesey's 1962 novel of the same name. The film adaptation stars Jack Nicholson as Randall McMurphy, a criminal who claims to be mentally ill and has recently been transferred to a psychiatric ward. Inside the hospital, McMurphy clashes with head nurse Ratchet, whose authoritarian streak incites rebellious McMurphy to enlist his fellow patients in a series of misadventures. Some of their pranks are harmless and bring joy to their monotonous routines, but other acts of anarchy result in irreversible tragedy. The film's award-winning ensemble cast includes Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, and Brad Dourif in a motley crew of patients whose individual personalities shine throughout the film. Andreas Halsko holds an MA in Film Studies and English and has served as a film expert in various media, a curator of classics and historical films at Eus for Paradis and Cinematiquette, and an editor of the peer-reviewed film journal 16x9. He also teaches media studies at Harus University and has written numerous books, including TV Peaks, published in 2015, and Beyond Television in 2021. Currently, he is working on three English books about David Lynch, Milos Forman, as well as music and sound design in modern television drama. Andreas Halsko, welcome to After Images. Thank you for being here with us today for our second episode. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And for today's episode, you have chosen to speak about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a film by Milos Forman. I hope that my pronunciation is okay. We have checked in with one Czech friend, so I hope it's not too that, That's all I hear. Uh, they all call him Milos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So tell us, why did you choose this film? Well, I was... As you know, because we have a common interest also in Twin Peaks. So literally the two things that make me want to go to film school and study film at university too is uh, it's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I was brought up on, I suppose. My mother showed it to me when I was a very young kid. And uh, before even I watched Twin Peaks and I watched Twin Peaks when I was nine and 10. So around that age, that was when I grew up watching Cuckoo's Nest as sort of a mainstream thing. It has small elements of art film, which we'll get back to, but otherwise it's mostly a mainstream Hollywood film. And there's an art to that too, I think. So I know it's hardly the most uh, artsy or strange or niche of choices, but it's just a broad film that I like a lot. And then um, it reminds me of my childhood, but as I grew older, I, um, I started studying film and then uh, I've since gotten to know all of Milos Forman's uh, filmography going back to his early Czech productions. Um, and I think that there are some interesting sort of uh, common traits or features in, in his films that I wanted to delve into. And then I started working on a book about his work, 
And it's, it's mostly about his American films. So it, it is called Between Two Worlds. So there's that connecting tissue to Twin Peaks. Again, Between Two Worlds, Milos uh, Foreman in America. That's what it's called. So the whole first chapter is about his Czech production. But given that um, there's limited access to the people who worked with him on his Czech productions, many of them dead by now, unfortunately, some of them in elder care homes and stuff like that. Um, I had a lot of access to people that he worked with in America. And so that made it sort of easier for me to, to sort of make a dividing line right there. And I think that you've um, interviewed quite a lot of the people who worked on the film, parts, um, who were part of the cast or of the crew. Uh, can you tell us about um, this experience of interviewing them? Yeah, well, um, it's sort of a process that began way back when, uh, for me, uh, especially going back to TV Peaks, a book I did about Twin Peaks and modern television drama, I started interviewing people related to, to David Lynch and uh, both actually related and then just, uh, you know, as collaborative partners or something to that effect. Uh, and then many people have done that with Twin Peaks, but I found that that was an interesting process. So I did that when doing a, a book about um, generally what's happened in the TV landscape called Beyond Television. I interviewed a lot of different showrunners and stuff like that. And so I thought this that, that might be possible with Milos Forman too. And then um, a couple of people were fairly quick to say, okay, yeah, fair enough, we'll do that. Despite it being uh, an English book by a, a to them unknown English uh, or unknown Danish writer, um, so, but though, to begin with, mostly people behind the camera, they're usually easier to, uh, to approach or they're more approachable usually because, well, it's not necessarily the people themselves, but actors and actresses, they just have a lot, have a throng of agents and people that you need to go through. It's almost like a firewall. So, so, so getting to like, say, Uh, Danny DeVito is virtually impossible because you need to go through Katie Feltman and just an, and Katie Feltman would need to know that you've talked with like 20 big names in order to even perhaps, you know, uh, send your uh, request further. So I began getting interviews with um, editors, um, Lindsay Klingman, who was co-editor on One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and, and virtually all of his early films in America, Alan Haim, who who edited, um, he started working as part of a three team, three editing team um, on, um, on Hair from 1979, uh, together with Lindsay Klingman and also Stanley Warnow. I also talked with him. And then Richard Chu, who was also one of the main editors of Cuckoo's Nest. They were three editors. Richard Chu was there to begin with, which was kind of strange because they did All of, as you know, Cuckoo's Nest was done on location in Salem, Oregon. And while they were shooting it on location, Richard Chu was there editing while they were shooting, <laughs> ironically locked up in one of those rooms that were for chronics. So, uh, so he was in that asylum in a way. Yeah. So I got, I got to talking with those people. And, and usually you'll know that yourselves from all of your academic work that I've always found it strange that people are very interested in actors, but they seem to have no interest in the people who edit all of it. Like that's a pretty important part. Or people, the people who wrote it, usually 
people seem to be not interested in them. The same with the one who was like cinematographers and stuff like that. So all of that was fairly easy. And then I got to talking with some of the producers too, and a few actors accepted. And then once it gets rolling, sometimes it'll lead to, you know, bigger names. So, you know, that's how I got to talking with Edward Norton, who was a central uh, actor in, most people know Edward Norton, but I talked with him mostly about Milos Forman and uh, The People versus Larry Flint, not Edward Norton's most famous role at all. And then Annette Benning, I talked with her too. We talked about many of her different films, but we talked mostly about Valmont. Uh, and now it's my turn to see if I can pronounce it correctly, which you'll know is an adaptation, one of two adaptations made at the same time of Les Liaisons uh, Dangereuses or something to that effect, right? Uh, literally the Dangerous Liaisons film that came out just a little bit previously or before uh, Valmont, those were the two films. And Valmont was mostly a critical flop and also not really a success at the box office. So not a film that you would typically hear Annette Benning talking about because why would she need to? But so I think that there's something to uh, the snowball effect. And then there's something to the fact that despite Milos Forman, they, the interviewees, they have stories about him, let me tell you. Uh, we can get back to that. Stories about him literally having sex with like all of the people on his production. <laughs> so, you know, it would have been a Me Too story if I wanted to. I could make a tabloid Me Too book. Then that was, I promise you, that would be the selling version of this book. I'm not going to. Mm. But you could make it about, because th there are stories about um, pretty problematic working um, hours and stuff like that. And uh, a sort of stressful atmosphere and, uh, and him being very flirtatious, not, uh, not uh, transgressive. They were usually, it was <laughs> a two-way street. It seemed many people liked it. So it had that 70s vibe to it. Uh, but despite all of that, even Beverly D'Angelo, who, who told me about her sexual affair with him. Uh, I didn't want to talk with her about that because I, I, I never asked her about it, but it's fairly well known that she had sex with him uh, while they were doing hair. Um, but, so I didn't talk with her about that, but then she just brought it up herself and talked about it fairly openly. That was surprising to me. And despite all of those stories, they all tell stories about Milos Forman, um, that are very positive and all of them seem to really love his films. So I think the fact that he died not that long ago and that there aren't that many books on him, regardless or despite him having made so many great films, um, perhaps that's why they wanted to talk with me. And then because other people did so too. It's that thing about going into a restaurant only if there are already customers, right? Sounds like a very consensual, free love 70s and environment um, that was going on. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned several different films and several different actors or crew members. So maybe this is a good point now at the beginning to ask how you feel about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in terms of the wider spectrum of Foreman's filmography. Where does this film sit within his filmography? Well, I think... Um... There are a few films that I love. I, I quite like all of them, even his lesser known films. But um, he made a few films 
in um, in Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, that are um, broadly, broadly known, um, like The Fireman's Ball, for example, or Love of a Blonde, great, great films. And they have this, uh, he has this thing that he does that where he combines uh, levity and tragedy, um, which I think he does so neatly. There's sort of tonally, they're very similar, all of his films. They have a humorous side, yet they're also ultimately very tragic, many of them. Um, Cuckoo's Nest to me is, is his American classic. It's a, it's a very American film. Not only is it, is it um, of course, based on Ken Kesey, as you've said earlier, uh, but um, so it's an American novel. It's also um, based on an actual psychiatric situation in America. It's shot on location and the main character is indelibly American. He seems to sort of be a representation of sort of basic American values uh, in many ways, uh, also a problematic main character perhaps, but uh, we come to love him because he represents individuality and, and somebody who's anarchic and who's a free spirited and against the system. And Nurse Ratchet comes to represent uh, the system um, and Foreman himself thought of her as sort of a representation of communism or the way he, experienced it in, in Eastern Europe. So I think it's uh, it has all of those themes and those tonal qualities, the sensibility that harkens back to his Euro Eastern European films. And it also has small elements of that kind of naturalism or realism that, that he's so fond of. You'll see not only the on-location shooting, the fact that he uses a lot of amateurs, like for example, Dr. Spivy was an actual doctor at that hospital and many of the people in the background were actual inmates, um, but also sort of, for example, the boat trip, uh, often seen as sort of a biblical Jesus with his disciples trip. Uh, but it's also interesting to me simply because of the sort of, uh, it's almost as if it sort of suspends the action. It's, it's drawn out, it becomes too lengthy uh, compared to a typical Oscar or Hollywood film. Um, there's that air of realism where, um, in a way that so there are those elements thematically tonally uh, and, and in terms of realism that harkens back to his own film or his early films and then it's also you know indelibly american in many ways and 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 broader more mainstream so i usually use it when i teach classes on classical hollywood film uh, uh, cinema because it fits Joseph Paul Galino's eight sequence model, like right down to the to the point, and and despite, of course, well, the, I suppose we could get spoiled the ending, couldn't we? Uh, despite the ending not being uh, all as well that ends well, not in a traditional sense at least, uh, it really fits that model very much so, and and it all of the scenes are tied together causally so neatly as in a typical Hollywood film, um, going back to the very first uh, section of the movie where Jack Nicholson's character um, is given a pill and he doesn't want to take the pill. And ultimately he ends up saying that uh, uh, to uh, Mr. Harding um, that, oh, uh, well, he ends up making a bet with him, right? Essentially saying that uh, I bet that uh, in one week I can put a buck so far up Nurse Ratchet's ass that she doesn't know whether to shit or wind her wristwatch, something to that effect. And at that point, Mr. Tabor or Tabes, played by Christopher Lloyd, he says, uh, I'll, 
I'll bet a, I'll bet a dollar or something to that. I don't recall exact the exact amount, but that is the moment at which we create this typical dangling course. And from there on out, the plot is just like, literally, it's just like a classical Hollywood film. Hmm. So I usually use that to introduce how classical Hollywood films um, then turn into new Hollywood films that in some ways appropriate all uh, elements from European art cinema, but into the classical formula. And there's an art to that, I think, too. So I think it sits there. It's sort of, it's an interesting, it bridges the two sides of Milos Forman. Milos Forman as a classical storyteller, classical filmmaker, and Milos Forman as a, as a European realist. Well, I suppose that one could argue that the institution in which uh, all these patients uh, are um, is uh, akin to some sort of machine that is slowly crushing everyone. Uh, and um, to me anyway, that um, can be connected to um, the classical Hollywoodian scenario to a certain <laughs> sense that it all is uh, very cause and effect and uh, from a certain situation necessarily takes you to a certain ending. ending. Nonetheless, there is, uh, and you mentioned it, that moment on the boat which is like an opening that totally breaks this chain of events and brings us to almost this uh, time uh, image that uh, Deleuze is talking about. All of a sudden, the, the, the actions don't matter as much as they do in traditional cinema, and, all, and we enjoy just this moment as a breath of fresh air. I don't know yeah. if, uh, if um, you agree with this, but uh, that, that's... Absolutely. I hadn't thought of it as... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, in, in Kesey's book, they, they use the metaphor of the combine, right? So, uh, so abso uh, absolutely, <laughs> there's that machine-like metaphor connected to the system. I hadn't thought of it as the Hollywood system, but, but uh, I think that does make sense. Um, and, and you're right. Um, I, I think of that particular se se sequence, I guess it is, as, a, as excess or... Uh, or third meaning or something, and, uh, or a delusion moment. It's, um, and you're right, that is, that is the point at which it sort of, uh, it breaks into something else. Up until that point, it looks like a traditional Hollywood film in many ways. And uh, of course, then it ends slightly differently too, even if it is sort of a happy ending, I mean, uh, which is also a typical Milos Forman thing, the idea that we have this, um, there's usually sort of a, um, an unusual friendship that is established in somebody who ends up sacrificing himself for himself. For some, I guess that's also the major change they did in the hair script when Michael Weller, together with Milos Forman, they made hair into a film. They changed the ending so it ends up being uh, Berger, uh, Treat Williams' character, who sacrifices himself ultimately for um, for our character from Oklahoma, Claude, who is the main character, John Savage's character. So uh, they they take the main elements in here, but then they introduce the outsider coming from Oklahoma, going into the story, and ultimately the hippie becomes the hero as he sacrifices himself for the the, the more conservative uh, redneck. Who was supposed to go to Vietnam? So, um, and those elements are what they introduced into the story. So, I think that ending also 
is not traditional, of course, because our main character dies. Um, and so essentially the system wins because it's also done elliptically in an interesting way. They talk about, we just cut from that party where Billy commits suicide. We just cut to, I don't know, sometime after. And they start talking about uh, thinking that he has escaped and he's become this mythical figure suddenly. And then, well, no, he hasn't. And, uh, and, and this system, the machine works. So <laughs> going with your analogy, if this is a Hollywood film, you can, uh, you can push, you can, um, you can shove at the system, you can uh, bend it ever so, ever, well, you can bend it to a certain degree, but ultimately the system is a machine. It's a well-oiled machine and it'll, it'll end up effectively uh, surviving everything. And so I mean, and Nurse Ratchet will be succeeded by someone else <laughs> and, and who will essentially do the same thing because she's not an evil person. She's just a representation of a system that works a certain way. Mm. And I'm so glad we mentioned the boat scene and this idea of breaking away because I think that also visually it strikes me as a very cinematic scene within the film that's otherwise quite contained within the institution. It really does have that kind of visual sense of a play. Almost, we could almost guess that it was a play and a novel with the kind of intimate setting and the very personal kind of close-ups and middle shots that we have. And then suddenly we're confronted with this beautiful visual landscape of the water and the surrounding greenery with wide angle shots, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of aerial shots. So what do you think about this in terms of Foreman's filmography, in terms of certain visual motifs that come back? Is this something that you think is unique to this film, this kind of breakaway? Um, and that it's linked to a play, or do you find this regularly? Well, so there's two things in what you mentioned. I think both of them are very interesting. First off, no, I think that he does that, what well, we can call it a delusion moment or something to that. He does that breakaway quite often. In Hair, we have that scene too. I talk with Beverly D'Angelo about that, where they uh, blow smoke rings at the end of it. Suddenly, it's as if the all action the forward proportion, the forward pull of the story is totally suspended and they sit there blowing smoke rings. It's, uh, well, I suppose it's a musical, so it has slightly different rules, but again, it seems like sort of a naturalistic moment within uh, a shower film. Um, and again, based on a, on a Broadway play, uh, even if they made changes, many of his stories are not his stories. Many of his stories are based on on plays and he usually, he's part of writing the script, yet he's not the script writer. And in America specifically because his command of English uh, was not good enough in his own view that he'd be able to write a script uh, that would be well, convincingly American, I suppose. Um, so, but he's a, an extremely intelligent and great uh, script writer. Uh, we can get back to that, but no, he has he has these moments in virtually all of his films where um, it seems we're going forward, and then suddenly we we break away. It can be a character suddenly doing sort of a almost like a breaking of the fourth wall uh, monologue or a sort of a a speech in the middle of the film, as is the case in Larry Flint, where he has this. Um, 
there's this montage of images as he's talking about uh, the freedom of speech and because that's the main theme of the of the film is of course that it's a uh, it's the idea that while we follow a pornographer, we might not like him, we might not like pornography, and we might think that he's exploitative. And it seems he is all of those things. And again, it's based on, in this case, not a play, but a real life person and a real story. Um, but man, the principle is still true. I mean, the principle that uh, if we, uh, the principle of free, free speech is still freedom of expression he does have a point, and that point is is uh, is made in the form of a, a strange uh, um, speech that I don't know. It sort of breaks the total the, the the tone and the style of the rest of the film, and seems like this strange Oliver Stone like moment in the middle of the action. And of course, Oliver Stone was sort of um, slightly a part of the film in a way. Um, it's strange that Milos Forman has often, at least in America, he's made adaptations of stories, uh, either real stories or theatrical or stories that were made for the stage or that literature. Um, that he didn't write the original story. Uh, he didn't write the screenplay. And, uh, and, and, and in often, he wasn't even meant to direct it but it ended up on his table. And so there, there is that, there is that element. I think that's why, why many people haven't written about him or why that there hasn't been that much written about him is that it's, it can be at least, it's easy to see how David Lynch has a similarity across his films. Are you kidding me? You can see it five seconds and then you know, it's a Lynch film and you know, uh, but and the same goes with Tarantino with Scorsese. You can name hundreds of, of directors that are like that. But Fulman, he's made a lot of different films. And often when I mention, like, for example, this book that I'm doing, right? And I mention, uh, and then he made Man on the Moon. And people say, oh, did he make that one? Yeah, yeah. And he made Larry Flint. Oh, he made that one. Yeah, and he made Hair. No, that wasn't him. Yeah, it was. And, and, be, and when you look at him, you can see that there are those similarities. And often those are the things that it seems he sort of, inserted into the movies, the typical theme of the outsider, the typical theme of the difficult, obnoxious, borderline, very problematic main character, who might principally be correct in many respects, but who is also very problematic. I mean, the very first scene with Jack Nicholson's character is him talking about statutory rape. And un unapologetically talking about, uh, well, having sex with a 15-year-old. I know it was 75, but it's statutory rape. And so that's the first thing we learn really about him. And he's absolutely not shameful about it. And so that's, uh, that's not your typical main character because you present a problem right there. You present an obstacle that would make it difficult for us to like him. Yet we end up liking him uh, because of how he engages with other characters, and of course, because he's relatively less obnoxious than Nurse Ratched and the system she represents. So those elements will find his works, and that element of the, the naturalistic element or the delusion moment, because you're right, it's not like, it's not definitely not naturalism or realism throughout. It's sort of moments you'll see in his films. Uh, Valmont is more stuffy, I think 
slightly more like a classical costume play. But again, we have these these moments that's, that's, that, that sort of punctuate the action in a way. Definitely that's the case in, in, in Man on the Moon too. We have some of those uh, moments. I'd say that, for example, taking off is more, is full of those moments. Um, it's more, that's more realistic in nature. It has sort of a new Hollywood vibe to it. But so I think that's, that's the case, absolutely. And then the other question uh, was, I suppose I did touch upon that a little bit, the, the thing about the theatrical aspect. Yeah, I, um, I don't know, but he's, it's as if all of his films, at least the films he's made in America, are based on real stories from America or major books, major plays, Broadway plays. Ragtime is another example. Um, and unfortunately, in the original cut of the film, the theatrical cut, uh, many of those uh, Deleuzean moments were effectively cut, and uh, and whole whole actors were cut from the theatrical version because they had to cut it down. Um, and I don't know that the version that he originally intended would have uh, would have been. <laughs> Great, but but there are moments that when you see the deleted scenes, um, you see, okay, I can see where he was going with Fran Drescher's character. And she would have been a more vital part of that film had they not ended up almost chopping her role. Even more so Jeffrey DeMond's character in it, effectively almost Harry Houdini was almost effectively cut from the film. And it was based on a on a meandering, digressive, almost modernistic book. And, and that's not tailored to a cinema, not Hollywood cinema. So they ended up trying to make sort of a Hollywood period piece out of what is essentially sort of this digressive uh, meandering thing. And he and it, and it is slightly sprawling and it is slightly meandering. He does have those moments. And again, we have a character who's problematic, but who's in principle right and who ends up suffering the consequences for for it because ultimately the system wins. That's also the case at the end of the, that film. So, so yeah, that was, uh, again, a, a major American book. So I think that's a similarity across his work. Now, I'd like to uh, moments of, um, of freedom that we see in his movies um, in relationship to what you mentioned concerning uh, freedom of, of speech, uh, but also, uh, um, in, in relationship to uh, the fact that um, discussion is so important in uh, uh, one flew over the crow's nest. There are so many moments, uh, so many exchanges that are, I, I don't know if they are free and that might be the, um, the, 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 the central point there, but that are led by the, the head warden who is directing the conversation between everyone. But discussion is there at the, at the forefront of the film. And um, and I and I find that very interesting too that you're doing many interviews with these people because once again you're uh, um, entering into a discursive relationship with them and uh, and you just told us that thanks to this some elements came to the surface almost like 
psychoanalytically that uh, um, are related <laughs> to uh, what usually remains hidden um, uh, during the production of a movie. So I don't know if that's really a question, but can, can you uh, perhaps uh, react to this, to this important of importance of freedom, discussion, uh, interviews in uh, in Milos Forman's filmography and in your um, work as uh, the person writing this book? Well, I think uh, it's interesting that uh, it seems dialogue works in two ways in Cuckoo's Nest. Um, so one is that <laughs> I don't know what his philosophical thoughts would have been on it, because, of course, I have not had access to Milos Forman himself. And as opposed to David Lynch, or who's more obtuse or more cryptic once in a while when asked about his films, I think Milos Forman would have readily told us what he meant. I mean, he was not secretive in that sense at all. You can find many interviews where he talks about his stuff. Uh, and readily says what he meant with a certain symbol or something. Um, but you're right, we do have those discussion scenes. We have them in hair too. Uh, we have uh, a lot that's a very much a discussion or a debate. And it's interesting in that one, I'll get back to Cuckoo's Nest, it's not meant as a digression, but in hair, it's interesting that he was definitely progressive. He was a left wing of Milos Forman. I mean, he was against the communist a totalitarian system in Eastern Europe, but he was definitely a left winger. He was a progressive. So, um, so he was, it's, you might get the idea that he's sort of a libertarian or something, but that's not the case. I mean, he, he had this anarchic quality to him. And so, uh, but then it's interesting that in Hare, uh, he makes uh, the, the, the outsider, the, the Oki, uh, who's sort of backwards politically or conservative at least, right? He makes him sort of a very um, uh, warm character and, and they have these uh, debates, these talks uh, about uh, um, <laughs> community and, uh, and society and, and sexuality and all of these things. And it's, uh, it seems a good and, and ultimately fruitful dialogue. In Cuckoo's Nest, uh, dialogue serves different functions. I think uh, uh, what makes him a liberating character uh, is that he never at one point uh, seems to go away from dialogue. He, he immediately enters in with a, uh, in, into a dialogue, even with characters that he's um, asked not to enter into a dialogue with. I mean, Chip Brunton, of course, most importantly, uh, a major difference from the novel where we know from the get-go that he is not deaf and mute because it's all told from his point of view. In, 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 in the film, it's, uh, it's essentially a plot twist. Uh, it's not until they have the fruity juice, uh, juicy fruit scene, where the chewing gum scene, uh, that, that he learns that Chief Rumpton in fact talks and is able to hear. But he talks with him from the very beginning and it has almost like a therapeutic quality. He recognized this, recognizes them as human beings because he makes fun of them. In all of his, at times, obnoxiously boisterous character, his boisterous uh, personality also pushes and, uh, and engages with, uh, there's a warmth to it. So he might make fun of them, or but it's certain, uh, it's, it's clearly and evidently shown that they react to it positively. That's why Billy 
become so fond of him. That's why, uh, I mean, most of them react to him very strongly. Um, so that's that's the, the, some people have talked about play therapy, that he engages with them in a playful, dialogic way uh, when they're playing basketball and uh, all of these different things. Uh, or in the scene that we talked about before we began recording, where uh, he essentially ends up doing a baseball game coverage that's not there, a fictitious one, right? He, uh, he uh, of course, Jack Nicholson exploiting his his talent and interest in baseball right there because he usually, he sounds exactly like a commentator. Um, but then dialogue can also be oppressive uh, and uh, and 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 exploitative. I think. Nurse Ratched, however seemingly pedagogical she is, is very exploitative in her in her in her and uh, authoritarian in her dialogue, and especially you you touch upon the psychoanalytic or the Freudian aspects. Uh, there is a quite evident uh, Freudian aspect to um, sort of the Oedipal relationship. It seems with Billy and and his mother, and and she uses that as a way to. Uh, to keep him down and to avoid him becoming too much of a hassle for her or something to that effect. And, and effectively, of course, that, that perhaps might be the thing that pushes him to commit suicide. Uh, so She's a very castrating character, isn't she? I mean, she uses uh, language in order to keep people where she thinks they belong. Whereas uh, Nicholson is the real analyst in a sense, uh, doing the opposite, uh, trying to free people from their chains. Yeah, yeah, it seems that way to me. Um, certainly, yeah. Um, he, he gives them a voice. Uh, so he, he might be loud and all that stuff. And he's, uh, and he's certainly also, I mean, yeah, has a lot of flaws. I mean, because he's, he's also, he is also in a sense exploiting them. I mean, he earns money and he he does a lot because he wants to too. I mean, so he plays cards with them. It doesn't seem to me that he's doing that essentially to engage them. He's doing that because, I mean, otherwise he'd be bored or something. He makes that party not for their sake. It seems that's, that's more you know, for his, his own sake. So he might be egotistical. Uh, he might be loud and he and selfish in different ways, but at the same time, yes, he is liberating and 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 he is ultimately humanly engaged with these people, uh, actually interested in them. And um, well, I th he's a very interesting character. However problematic he is, he's very interesting. And over the years, I think it's it's been an interesting thing for me to see how students have reacted to it because I've screened it over and over. And uh, it's become more and more of a thing, that Me Too moment at the opening. Uh, the th it's become more and more of an obstacle to, uh, to sort of accept that parenthesis and then and still well, go into the, the film and, and because it's, they react more strongly and negatively to him than they did like just 10 years ago. So, so there is that, but uh, Nurse Ratched's character, I feel, I think she's so wonderful in it, Louise Fletcher. And, but uh, uh, given that she represents the system, she's become, she's, I guess 
there are nuances left out of her character. I mean, I mean, she, that's the only character I could wish uh, for just a hint of more nuance. There's so much that's hinted at in the book that we don't get in the film. And I know uh, that's always the question with, you know, making a book into a film, but in the book, we hear a lot about her due to her, like, for example, her large bosom and her feminine qualities, or even her erotic qualities, having to, uh, to, to, to set those aside, to button up her and become very authoritarian, also for the sake of winning just some sort of, having some sort of authority in that room that makes, that suddenly changes your perspective on her as a character, I think, that makes you feel okay, I can sort of see where she's coming from too, not just because she represents a system. And it's, I mean, it is interesting to discuss. I mean, it's not as if she's always incorrect in what she does. She is right when saying that some people, they like regularity. I mean, it's not incorrect. There are some psychiatric patients who, who would uh, have a big problem with sudden changes in the schedule. So, I mean, I'm sure from a psychological point of view, she's not altogether wrong, but in the film, uh, she becomes quite villainous, I suppose, and given that she represents the system and she represents a more totalitarian or authoritarian approach to language, you're right. I'm sorry that you mentioned these two sides of the characters, McMurphy and Nurse Ratchet, because I feel like in both cases, we make a lot of assumptions about them based on information that we have really early on the film, you know, things that might be really dislikable about them. And at the same time, we have to sort of do the work to go further with them and to imagine, you know, what's really happening, you know, within in terms of McMurphy, who has this evolution from us learning that he's a statutory rapist and he's completely unapologetic about it to the fact that he is doing good work somehow within the ward and that these friendships he develops are so beautiful with the different patients. And in the same way that with Nurse Ratchet, we want to dislike her as the figure of authority who seems a bit fascist and really straight laced. And at the same time, thinking about the fact that, you know, it's 1975, she's a, a woman with a group of men that she's, you know, been in charge of taking care of and trying to do the kind of, you know, psychological work that she does with them in, in, in therapy and keep them healthy and keep them cared for. So I think there's a lot of depth to that. But if we could also continue on this topic, it's really interesting what you said about the way that your students have responded to the, the film at different moments in time. I also watched this film very young and I don't have any memory of thinking it was so problematic at the time. I think I was really touched by the story. And, and now I just watched it a few days ago once again in, in preparation for the podcast. And suddenly I realized, oh, we would never make the film this way today. And that might be very easy to say because that's true for every film. But at the same time, there are elements that I could see you know, would be very, very problematic today that are going to bother a lot of people, whether it's the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily always sensitive to indigenous people, even though Chief oh. is a wonderful character who's also can be depicted in a positive way, but there's also the way that Jack Nicholson's character, you know, does the mouth whopping and, and I thought, oh God, not again, you know, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and he's borderline racist towards Washington and, and uh, uh, the black people in the ward. Uh, who uh, I've sometimes uh, talked with my students about the sort of uh, there's an interesting uh, theme of power going on. And, and I guess that it sort of implied that the African 
American um, Washington and, and, and the other helpers who, you know, sweep the floors and stuff like that and do menial stuff. Uh, it's implied that because they're in the bottom of the hierarchy, it's natural for them to step downwards. It's natural for them to step on the people, the only people below them in the in the social hierarchy, and they're the inmates. Uh, but but I think it's it's shown in, in, in multiple scenes. There's that scene where they're bathing. That it, it, it's when they he talks about them meeting outside and. It's yeah, Jack Nicholson's character is, is borderline racist, I think, and and he's something of a misogynist. I mean, women to him are uh, are, are essentially something that you buy. I mean, um, Sandy comes by and she she I mean, he sort of <laughs> allows Billy to, to to have sex with her. It's sort of as if she were his property. It's it, there's a, there's a um, yeah there's something to that that I and you could say I would agree that that wouldn't perhaps fly today as it were. But um, I think that is also part of what makes Milos Forman interesting because I mean Larry Flint is a horrifyingly obnoxious character. He's a uh, he's uh, he talks in an obnoxious way he's um he's broad he's boisterous he's loud he's uh, a sexist pig and he uh, he uh, he he's uh, abusive um and all of that based on a real person who was there who saw the film uh and it's not a good portrait i mean but um he's right in certain respects. And I think it's interesting that he sort of, he creates all these obstacles. He makes it essentially almost impossible to like a certain character, yet you end up doing it uh, either way. And I'm, and you, I, I think you are right that, I mean, I don't recall at all when I was young, ever think I actually thought that scene where he talks about the 15 year old, uh, I don't think it's crazy at all. I mean, uh, once you get that little red beaver up in front of you, it's, uh, I don't think it's crazy at all, right? Uh, I, she was 15 going on 35. I knew it by heart and I thought it was actually kind of funny. And it's not, it's not funny at all. Um, so I think, yeah, times have changed and you would see it in a different light. Um, but um, yeah, we, we don't necessarily like the character um, anymore, but we still understand that the, the values that he defends are important. Um, yeah. And that stays uh, throughout. Uh, and um, Some of the values. I mean, the, the, the values are of our freedom, the values of fighting against a system that is oppressive, and that basically is... Uh, uh, almost uh, a concentration camp. I mean, there are moments when uh, they are playing basketball with uh, barbed wires around it that are very reminiscent yeah. of a concentration camp. Uh, yeah. so, He's uh, watching from the window and yeah, yeah absolutely. And so so the, the film um, was to me um, very interesting from this perspective of what the, the system or the institution is going to do to the relationships between uh, the people who are working for the institution and the people who are um, uh, there as uh, patients. Uh, and that reminded me a lot of the works of people like Stanley Milgram, Submission to Authority, or to the Stanford Prison Experiment, all those uh, psychology, uh, social psychology experiments that show that um, uh, it's very easy in certain situations for people to become 
monsters basically and that uh, that um is important in relationship with um nurse ratchet because she is not a monster uh, by nature it's the system she's also a victim of the system isn't she yeah 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 i think you're right it's a it's ultimately a story about uh, how systems um reproduce themselves and cast people into different roles uh and yeah so within that system she there's a dynamic and she she takes on a role and she, she and if if she were not to do it somebody else would and 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 sort of it perpetuates itself yes i think that is essentially the story uh, so so she because she comes to represent that of course we dislike her but it's not you're right it's not her as a human being and even even in the end when it reproduces itself and uh, chief prompton he uh, he he does that mercy kill or euthanasia whatever we call it um i mean the way they react to her when she comes back they don't react in a fearful manner and she actually speaks to them in a kind of friendly way she has that neck cast and and she says uh and he shows seafeld i think it is shows her that he's had work done on his teeth and and she's a uh, very pedagogical and actually kind of warm in that scene it's interesting she is kind of motherly right there in an in a in an absolutely not authoritarian or or oppressive way so i there's uh i mean in that sense it becomes a story yes about uh, roles and dynamics and uh, and so there's a role that that we tend to forget in that sense which is of course Jack Nicholson's role how much of a part of it is he how much is he part of creating the the or, or pushing the oppressive system to its limits uh i mean would she have been that oppressive if he had not been uh i suppose intentionally trying to continually or uh, you know push her uh, he's part of that system too and it, there's to me it was an eye opener of a uh, of a scene the scene where um where they uh, tell him that they're all they almost all of them voluntarily um because to me that was sort of the the first time that i started thinking about free will free will and and determinism and this what does that even mean to be there voluntarily and why what what do they what do they have to gain from it and uh and yeah yeah so i think whether it refers to social psychological studies or jean paul sartre or somebody else it's definitely not just about existence or uh individuals who who seek freedom it's also about um, oppressive systems that perpetuate themselves and and dynamics and roles that cast us into different uh, uh into different roles and make us into different versions of ourselves and i think we all in not to that degree but we all know that from our own lives i mean uh, me and my wife we talk about it continually how whenever we we don't have that many conflicts but whenever we have a conflict with it usually has to do with the uh, with our dynamic the roles that we've end up ended up giving each other right as so somebody can be more free perhaps or somebody ends up working more or and that the person who works more then us also ends up being slightly more anal about stuff and 
but how much is that a character trait and how much is that a dynamic? I mean, so I think it, uh, there's a, I guess that was what I liked about it. Even when I was young, it's just, it's a very human study, uh, not just about systems and how they can be oppressive, but how, how human beings work. Yeah. It seems to me that it's still a very important film in terms of how do we live together and how do we want to live together, um, coexistence. And, and to, sorry, and just, just a, a comment and to go, to, to go back to what we were saying about dialogue, um, it, it is also about how much of what we say the result of, um, I mean, are we really the ones talking or are we talked by the system? Uh, when we think we are talking, is it really us who are talking or is it the institution around us that is talking through us? And I've got the, the feeling that uh, in the case of Nurse Ratchet, that's very much the case, that she's not really the one who is expressing her inner thoughts, but she's just reproducing what's coming from above or behind. Yeah, I think she's left her individuality at home. And I think that's that's what is implied in the book. Once she puts on her nurse's gown or whatever it's called, and that cap and all of it, and she buttons it closely, and Mildred disappears and she becomes Nurse Ratchet. She falls into a character, and she is a certain version of herself. Of course, there is a she's in there somewhere, and and the same goes with. I'm sure that you'd find that in we could have seen that's it's only hinted at right, but we could I'm sure we could have seen even worse versions of Jack Nicholson's character. Yeah. I mean, because we we do get hints of him being homophobic. The way he talks to Harding all the time is is pretty annoying. It Harding is annoying too, granted, but I mean. Um, whether or not he's uh, he's gay, that has nothing to do with it. I mean, and 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 uh, I'm sure you could have seen him in situations, and it's uh, it's just there as a backstory. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know if that, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And I'm very curious to know. So, what do you do when you know you have students who raise all of these legitimately, you know, problematic aspects of the film, and at the same time? if we are willing to work through them, I think we can also arrive at some very important discussions, um, many of the points that you've just mentioned. But I'm curious, how do you um, engage in discussions like that with your students who maybe their immediate reaction is to be shocked by certain things that are problematic? Well, uh, first off, I wouldn't start by t telling them that Milos Forman himself uh, was borderline problematic. <laughs> Because then some of them would perhaps want us to cancel the film itself. Uh, but given that it's just just the fictional character, um, we can use. I I would usually make a sort of disclaimer, and my disclaimer would would be not that this was made in '75 and back then people were backwards. It, it's not like that. I would usually say something to the effect of, um, "Okay." Um, Part of what makes this, while in many ways a fairly traditional Hollywood film, part of what makes this not traditional is that it sort of pushes the not likable qualities of our main character to its limits. And it, it presents us with obstacles. It makes, us, uh, it makes it difficult for us to love him at least wholeheartedly. And, and, and so I, what I'd want you to do is I want you always to look at characters from the inside out. 
it's not interesting whether we deem him morally not good or you know or good that's that's a moral question we can take that afterwards but it's interesting in the first case what makes a character do this and that what motivates a character why what is it he wants and and why does he do what he does and 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 so when when we engage with it that way it's acceptable had it been american beauty a film that i've often used i wouldn't be able to use it anymore because then it has a different there's a different aspect to it because Jack Nicholson, while clearly a womanizer, and, and we know of his stories, but there are no stories of him assaulting anyone, not to my knowledge, at least. And 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 Kevin Spacey's personal stories, although I mean, or we there are a lot of allegations, at least certainly, and and those stories are eerily close to what goes on in the film. So that makes for a, an impossible, that makes for an impossible, I, I wouldn't be able to teach that anymore. I, uh, at least I don't, because I know it would be too problematic. So, but given that Jack Nicholson is just a fictional character, it seems people are somewhat willing to to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course I, 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 I am wary about it in in certain ways, I mean, I do know that some people would notice the misogyny very, uh, there are the racial aspects that you mentioned, um, right? But I mean, and some people do mention those, um, but not as much. It seems the misogyny is what most people react to. Um, And there's also the representation of, of mental illness too, that I think has shifted a lot in recent years as well. That's been a huge topic of discussion, especially for our beloved horror genre, because it's such a <laughs> horror. But I love the the questions that you raised for your students, because it seems like a really respectful way, on one hand, to acknowledge, you know, the very genuine uh, feelings and reactions that the viewer has, and at the same time, to also recognize that works of art, like life, are very complicated and messy, and that, you know, sometimes we have to push beyond that kind of binary good, bad morality, as you mentioned. Uh, I think one could argue that his character is transgressive all over. Yeah. While it's okay to be transgressive on certain topics, like uh, when uh, an institution is being too oppressive, it is definitely not okay to be transgressive when it comes to sleeping with a 15-year-old or uh, being racist. So um, it's an interesting study in transgression and how one needs to... uh, perhaps avoid absolutes. You know, the idea that all sorts of transgression are good by nature. No, it's more complicated. I mean, you've got to um, apply it to the context and see how it fits. Um, Transgression is not by itself a bad thing, and it can actually be a very positive thing in certain situations. But um, yeah, it takes some uh, thinking, uh, um, morally speaking, to really understand when it is right and when it is not. It's very interesting what you mentioned. Edward Norton, he argued that perhaps the reason we like many of the characters in his his films is that uh, they do all the things, they're free in ways we would wish we were, and they're unrestrained in ways that are not possible. And so that speaks to what you're talking about, about transgression, because 
sometimes we would wish that we could engage in lustful sex in the i mean look look at the mozart in amadeus he's a, he's just he's like a kid i mean and he's an annoying kid so it's not <laughs> as if salieri is a is a wonderful character necessarily but i mean amadeus is clearly clearly a genius but he's uh, the way he engages with women and he's just overly hypersexual all the time and and rambunctious and kind of uh, idiotic in a way and and and, and uh, um, McMurphy's character is uh, McMurphy is certainly very free and liberated many of us perhaps we could wish we were that liberated uh, but we can't be because perhaps we're too shy and perhaps there are certain norms of social restraints that we accept <laughs> and that we should accept. So you're right, those transgressive aspects you'll see in many of the characters. I mean, once in a while, we wish that if we were at a very annoying, obnoxiously conservative dinner party, we could just jump on the table as Treat Williams' character in uh, <laughs> and start singing, you know, and talking to everybody. But we don't, because um, that's not a functional way of being in life. But I mean, yeah, he, his films are uh, McTilly. She said she she plays a central character in Valmont, which is ultimately very much, and and you would know, of course, from the the original novel about people who exploit uh, other people, and 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 again about uh, again about transgressive sex and sex with minors and stuff like that. Um, and McTilly, she said that, well, she thinks that ultimately that's a, a study of the human condition. And, 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 um, and so we agreed upon speaking of the human condition as sort of a line that in many ways encapsulates his work. It's, it's about the human condition and the human condition is, as you said, Marissa, is messy. It's, it's uh, in, in real life, it's difficult. I mean, he had to watch both of his parents being fetched as part of a uh, Holocaust, right? And 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 uh, and uh, he, and then he grew up in Eastern Europe under the totalitarian communism, and then he went to America. Uh, and um, being accepted in America as an immigrant is not necessarily that easy, especially given that his English is not was not that great. So um, he he was himself, it seems, a perpetual outsider, and many of the characters in his films are problematic, dilemmatic, obnoxious, difficult, um, but they're also, and they're outsiders, but they also, through that lens, they shed a light on something. So that's why his films in, in America became so indelibly American. He could see America for all of its ideal qualities and all of its real problems as an outsider looking in on it, whether these are problems of, of uh, how we deal with immigrants as, as illustrated or black people as illustrated in, in ragtime or um, how to uh, create a community uh, in a polarized society as in here or um, how to deal with war, America as an aggressor uh, in Vietnam as, as in taking off or, or uh, how we deal with psychiatry and with people. I mean, it is, we come to love all of these, these mental patients uh, as, and we should. Um, but there is of course that 
subtext throughout the film that some of them might in real life be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And of course we can't just, you know, um, so the, the progressive part of me would want, uh, well, we need to have them in society too. But I mean, Tay, we end up loving Christopher Lloyd's character. He's there, he is committed. And the same with Chief Rumpen. We don't know what he's done, but probably something pretty mm-hmm. heinous. And I love that that's never told. It's there, but it's it's enough for him to be committed there. He might have killed someone. He might have done something. So he might be dangerous out in society. So how do we deal with that? Uh, and that I I love how it, he touches about those, those very he touches on those very human things. Yeah, it really beautiful to see the way that he humanizes kind of marginalized people, and in this case in particular, people whom we rarely have the chance to interact with, such as those living in a psychiatric ward. It feels like he really gives voice to their kind of inner life that we really learn about, you know, what they aspire to, what they enjoy. It really, really humanizes these people so that they, they become dimensional. So even though I've just mentioned the fact that there are problematic aspects, perhaps in this film of the representation of a psych ward, at the same time, I think the film is really beautiful in the way that it does humanize them, that it gives them dimensions in a way that I don't think any film at that point had. Do you, can you recall any other film of the period that really is so great at at giving individual personalities to patients that are hospitalized? No, I don't know that I could. Um, it's interesting that just before we, just before we were supposed to talk today, I thought about the sight and sound list and the Chantilman on top of it, and, and kudos to Chantal Agamemnon. It's from the same year, 1975. A lot of stuff happened that year, so certainly films were becoming more progressive in terms of how could we represent, for example, gender, as in that case. How could we represent race? We had some African-American filmmakers making totally different films, not just black exploitation films, but films that were sort of neo-realist in nature and dealt with black communities in a totally different way. Uh, and yes, I mean, McMurphy has very, he has a lot of problems and he had all, including also sort of a racist quality, but Ultimately, it's also one of very few films, not just to showcase uh, psychiatric patients in a way that humanizes them and deals with them as nuanced people. But it also, we also do have a Native American in a central character uh, and, and who becomes in a way, so he, be, he, he is ultimately liberated. Uh, and, 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 and so it becomes sort of an almost like an inverted western i usually call it because uh the cowboy enters uh the the town and he uh you know up, upsets the system and usually he'll you know disappear into into the horizon but he then sacrifices himself and 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 chief Brumpton, the native american uh, who who was never his enemy to begin with is the one who disappears into the horizon. As we hear Jack Nitschke's music uh, that in a very progressive modern way combined Native American music with uh, modern uh, Western music sort of. So it's a, it's a, 
I like how it, it yeah, I do think that there it's very, in certain ways, very progressive. But of course, when looking at it through sort of a, uh, a 2022 lens, parts of it do seem quite backward. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps they don't. I mean, because again, it's connected to Jack Nicholson's character. Mm -hmm. so, but, I mean, again, it's, it's just because perhaps we sh he should be seen that way. It's okay we see him that way because those are also parts of his qualities. I mean that as a neutral. I mean, yes, he's also a misogynist. Yes, he's also homophobe, or he can be when he wants to. He's, I don't think he's necessarily racist. I just think whenever somebody is, he'll like some black people and those he don't, he'll be racist to. He'll use their race as part of a way to uh, annoy them. I don't think he's necessarily against gay people, but because Harding annoys him, he'll use, um, Harding is, is definitely not sure about his own sexuality, it seems that way. So he's he's using that to annoy him. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily against all women, even if he clearly objectifies women. But, uh, and I think he's not necessarily only abusive to Sandy. He also seems to like her actually, or <laughs> in his own strange way. But so yeah, perhaps we're, it's okay we see him through that lens. We're supposed to see him through that lens. Uh, I would argue um, that he is very much like the Eid in the film, that yes. he is that force that is yeah. very animal, very uh, progressive in a sense, but that can also, when it is left alone, become once again very transgressive and that can become wild and that needs the super ego there of the institution of the state to be kept in control but of course when the super ego becomes too strong that creates another sort of problem a very oppressive society and it's all about the tension between this character representing the id and the institution representing the super ego that transpires through this film and i would argue through many of uh, four man's movies. Uh, Mozart is also an id gone wild, uh, totally <laughs> yes. uh, loose uh, in Vienna and uh, who needs uh, to a certain extent the state to uh, give form to his creativity. Otherwise it would just uh, never come to anything really worthwhile. Uh, but, but to come back to this, um, uh, yeah. The reason why I was looking at something, Frank, there, but we'll get back to it, is actually because I wanted to find a quote from Edward Norton, where he touches about upon this very aspect. He doesn't use the word it and superego, but I think that's absolutely it. <laughs> that is the case, yeah. I think that is the case. And you can't have one without the other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All about the tension and the relationship between the two and finding the fine tuning somehow. Uh, because you need both. It's just um, about finding a way for them to coexist and to work together instead of you know, against each other. But uh, to me, there is a, a, a very important uh, scene that connects uh, to this, and that's the moment at night when he has the opportunity to go away, to free, yeah. and he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, it's almost as if he chooses not to, or as if his unconscious uh, stops him from escaping, because he could totally do it at this point, couldn't he? I see it that way too. 
Um, I remember how much it frustrated me the first couple of times I saw it, and I suppose it's meant to frustrate you. But um, I talked with Lindsay Klingman about that because she edited that sequence. I was very proud of it. And um, you're right, it's, uh, he has every opportunity to escape. It's, um, so it, I think it is subconsciously, or he, it's not, he, I don't think he's conscious about his choice, but, um, but yes, he chooses to stay there. Perhaps, so uh, you mentioned it in terms of sort of Freudian terms, but you could also see him as, uh, I've sometimes used Kierkegaardian terms. So if, if, if he were originally an ethicist, only engaged in sort of hedonistic pleasures and everything to feed his own ego. And perhaps he does develop into sort of an ethicist. He sees that if, well, uh, well, I, yes, I could do this. I could escape. But if I were to do that, uh, I would live only for me. Uh, I would serve only me. It, it, it of course, it, it ends up catastrophically and, and, and Billy commits suicide in, 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 in what is a hard and gut-wrenching scene. But I think, yes, it's, it's not just him being an annoyingly bad at actually escaping. He, he pauses too, too, for too long. And that scene where he falls asleep, it, that was what I talked with Klingman about, is also strangely prolonged. It's not that you don't see him doze off uh, gradually. You just see him sitting there. It actually takes quite a lot of time before he starts dozing off. It's as if, again, we have a, one of those Deleuzean moments. It's sort of, it, it, everything is suspended right there. And, uh, and uh, of course, there's that element of, we hope that we're frustrated. We hope, okay, get out that window. You have the opportunity right now, but yeah, I think, whether or not he made that choice or if it's just subconscious, somewhere inside of him, he knew that he had a role and he had to step into existence. And in order to do that, he had to see beyond his own uh, means and interests. And, 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 and that was, that's what he does. So perhaps that's the, that's the beginning of him actually becoming someone. Mm -hmm. uh, because that, because, I suppose in Kierkegaardian terms, you become someone when you realize that you can only be someone if you're someone for someone. Yeah. Right? Stepping into existence requires that you see um, responsibility and take responsibility of what all of your choices mean and what consequences they have for other people. And he sees that. And of course, well, tragically so, he is at fault in terms of Billy's suicide. And I think his reaction, he reacts, I think that's one thing that again, plays into that it super ego thing. What can she do upon seeing Billy having committed suicide? She knows this will lead to utter chaos. What can I do? And, and her immediate reaction is, um, well, I think the best thing we can do is, uh, is get back to our daily schedule or something to that effect, which seems like a, um, a very super ego-like thing to do. It seems like a, a very constrained and sort of a, a learned thing. 
and I think he reacts to that. He would have wanted a human reaction from her. Um, but she knows a human emotional reaction might ultimately just, everything might just go awry at that point. So, um, so he reacts to that. That's part of it. And the other part, I think, is that he knows ultimately this is the consequence of his doing. Had he not, uh, well, had he not sort of forcefully liberated Billy sexually, giving him that awakening, um, Billy would have not committed suicide. I'm pretty sure of it. And, 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 and I think he knows too. So that reaction is, um, has those two elements to it. It's funny because we talked about football or soccer earlier and uh, right now everyone is talking about Juhlmann should be fired and and all that stuff, the Danish coach, because they were so horrendous. But, uh, but when they did well at the Euros, the reason why all Danes liked him was that when Eriksson died on that field, he was dead for a couple of minutes, right? Um, was because he didn't come out with sort of a coach's very... Um, uh, very thought out answer. He was um, just, he came out with a human reaction. Uh, he expressed, you know, just unfiltered emotion. And uh, that resonated with a lot of people. So at that point, football became not important. That was just a thing people do for fun. But And, and he was no longer a coach. He was a human being. And uh, I what makes that scene so interesting to me is that I think she can't do that. She, if it, she, perhaps somewhere inside of her, she would have wanted to. She, she chooses not to. He reacts to it. And he also reacts to this, uh, the flaws, the errors that he has committed that essentially produced that situation. I don't know if that's the case, but um, certainly I think uh, it's an interesting study of, of how human beings are, uh, and we can't have total liberation. We can't, we can't have no constraints. Yeah, but but all constraints becomes cold and clinical. But I think what's nice in what you said it reminds me that there is a lot of hope in this film. You had mentioned how Nurse Nurse Ratchet has a bit of an evolution at the end when we see her being a bit more um, relatable and agreeable uh, with the patients. And I'm reminded also of this scene. There's something, you know, it's, it's Jack Nicholson's performance is so amazing in the film. You see in his expression, this look that's sort of, oh God, you know, what have I done? When he learns of Billy's suicide, I think there's a real realization. He's questioning himself perhaps for the first time and his actions, you know, that have led up to this moment and how he might've contributed, uh, contributed to it. This is my interpretation, but I think there's something very subtle in the facial expression that really leads you to, to have that impression in the film. So I think there is this kind of um, real hopefulness about the idea that humans can change, that we evolve, that we learn, and, and that there may even be these kind of little revelations um, that we see in, in the film. I think to a certain extent, it feels like, it looks like your child who's committed um, something he's not supposed to do and he says, oh, oh <laughs> what have I done? And you can see that on his face at this point. Yeah, right. There's this nonverbal acting going on right there. Uh, I, th I think you're absolutely right. 
And Mike Metaboy, he told me, as I we talked about this before we started recording the program, that while Michael Douglas, for obvious reasons, because Kirk Douglas owned the rights, he ended up producing the film. Mike Metaboy was the one who essentially packaged the film uh, for United Artists, which was the first of a few Foreman films made for United Artists. Hair was also made under that banner. And, and he, he told me that originally Hal Ashby was, was uh, actually set to direct the film. Uh, and I could see it being a Hal Ashby film. Um, and Hal Ashby, I love Hal Ashby. I, uh, one of the wonderful hippie directors, right? But I think if he had directed it, uh, and, and, I, and I mean this in the best possible way because I, Hal Ashby is one of my favorite directors of all time, but I think it might have been a slightly more black and white view on, uh, on freedom versus the system. The system would have been, I mean, I think despite, I think it was Ebert who said that Nurse Ratched is the most thoroughly contemptible character in all of film history. I don't think that's right, by the way, but uh, because I do think there is that hint of a small change. And he's certainly not just likable as we've covered, right? So I, I think that, and I don't know if this, this is the case, I wouldn't know, but when looking at uh, Harold and Maud or other films, uh, it's so evident his political stance that he's a, a hippie, a free love hippie, and, uh, and I, I engage with his politics quite a lot and I love his films and they have warmth and humanity, but I, sometimes less humanity for the people that are politically very different from themselves, it seems. So I'm sure that she would have been even more thoroughly contemptible if that's the case. I think she, there are hints of a person right there that uh, if we knew more about her, if we engaged more with her, we might be able to see where she's coming from and why she's acting the way she does. And we can see at the end that um, given other circumstances, um, she might seem less authoritarian. Uh, so I do think that there are those, those wonderful small hints. So just like we have Delusian moments or op openings, we have these, right, these facial expressions, um, these unexplained moments um, where, yeah, and they keep resonating in an interesting way. I think that that's um, yeah, I, and we won't ever have it answered. Bo Goldman, who who wrote it, he's ninety two or something at this point. He told me that um, that while uh, that while Kesey, he might have seen Nurse Ratched as representing um, a totalitarian form of psychiatry and an oppressive system in the U.S. Uh, and Foreman saw it as a representation of communism. Um, Bo Goldman saw Nurse Ratched as as his uh, mother-in-law, <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I don't know what that tells us about his mother-in-law, but I mean, <laughs> I think but, about about um, the point of view chosen by the filmmaker, because my feeling is that the point of view throughout the film is on the side of. McMurphy, isn't it? It's from Jack Nicholson's point of view. And so the, the reason why perhaps we don't see her as a complex 
human being is because we see her through his eyes. Yeah. It's not totally neutral the position of the storytelling in this film. Uh, it's not uh, describing everyone evenly. I, I do think that there is a certain tendency to show things through the eyes of Jack Nicholson. Definitely. It's, it's certainly limited to his pr perspective. You're right. And, uh, and, I, and I like that. I think that's, uh, um, I talked a lot with Scott Alexander and Larry Karasuski, the two writers who wrote, uh, very interesting people. And uh, we have a long conversation right now, but they can talk. Uh, let me tell you that. And they, they wrote Larry Flint and then they wrote The Man uh, on the Moon, The Man on the Moon. And um, we talked a lot about uh, that ending of Man on the Moon and we don't know uh, what to believe. And we don't know really what to do with Andy Kaufman's character. And, and have we been subject to, um, you know, is he fooling us? I mean, so there's that, we see it from his perspective and from his perspective, he can be quite convincing. He can be quite persuasive. And that Benning uh, might even seem slightly charismatic <laughs> in, in Belmont, despite being, well, an abusive asshole, I suppose. And, 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 and Larry Flint can be convincing when we hear it from his point of view, when he gets to you know, give his speech directly to us. So, um, and similarly in, in Cuckoo's Nest, uh, from, um, yes, it's limited to his perspective and it makes for a great difference in the storytelling that it's not from Chief Brompton's perspective as in the book, because partly because Chief Brompton is, of course, uh, he has psychological issues. So that gives the book a slightly more modernistic quality and somewhat like, almost like a Faulkner-esque thing that we see it from the point of view of a disturbed human being. Uh, and I suppose Jack Nicholson's character is slightly disturbed too, but it doesn't seem he is, I mean. It's ambiguous. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be like schizophrenic or something to that effect, right? So so it's, um, yeah, but but we should never forget. It's, it's, it's from his point of view and, and it's through his lens that she comes to look a certain way. Her actions come to, it's as if we, we inadvertently come to take his position. Um, and, um, yeah. and, uh, and perhaps we end up accepting his, his argument that she's something of a cunt or that she likes a rigged game or whatever, however he wants to put it. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, uh, I wanted to find, there's, there's this thing, like this is what Edward Norton say, right, uh, has said to me, uh, so this is the first time this will ever go to quote, I suppose, right? He said to me, uh, um, in a well, he says, um, in, the, in that thematic lane, there's never been anyone better than him, Milos Forman, that is. To me, he's one of the great cinema voices in the modern era in terms of examining the idea, uh, that I ideal individualist spirit when stacked up against the institutional hand. And he always does it with that incredible check blend of levity and tragedy. And to me, that's what makes him so singular. We can think of McMurphy, Amadeus, Colehouse uh, Walker, and Ragtime, and Larry Flint. They're all essentially the same character. Those characters are Milos' stand-ins, I think. They really are him. They're the artistic spirit within the system of insanity. 
And the reason why those films work is that McMurphy kind of stands for me, even if I'm not in a nut house. We relate to him. And if anything, we wish we could be more like him. What he does is dangerous, but it's thrilling and it's bold and it speaks of liberation. Amadeus is the same. And that's why Amadeus is such a great piece. Salieri sees what he, what he doesn't have. He sees the wild, unbridled talent. Similarly, Larry Flint is sexually free and funny. So you see something of yourself, or at least in Milos films, you see a character who's liberated in a way that we immediately connect with and root for. We want the character to win against the system. I think the success of Milos's films is that he is that you immediately identify with the spirit of those characters. You want to, you want them to outfox the institutions around them because we want to outfox those forces ourselves. Whatever the milieu is, he always anchors in that, and he has such a great feeling for all those contexts. It's like he's saying, "You're never going to, you're never not going to be human. You just have to make a choice." He just has that kind of wisdom. I think that's a great way of putting it. It's a, it is the individuality stacked up against the institutional hand, but the nuance that you brought to it, Frank, I think both, both of you did, is that um, the individuality cannot, cannot stay unchecked either. So, 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 so that's the nuance, and I think it is there in the work. You just need to look at it a little closer because the first thing you see is that Nurse Ratchet is a thoroughly contemptible character. The first thing you see is that, uh, is that even if he has committed statutory rape, uh, sta uh, rape he is a he's a he's a funny and jokey and charismatic person. Um, but then, when you look at it more closely, both ends of that spectrum become slightly more nuanced. I think, and then that goes back to what he did in his early films. Fireman's Ball, uh, for example, um, and uh, <laughs> and we had talked with Edward Norton specifically about uh, a small um, a small introduction that he's done to that film because he was forced to make an introduction to Fireman's Ball because the Communist Party wanted to make sure that this does not represent the party. And when Milos Forman made that introduction, <laughs> that's the great that's the genius of of Milos Forman, I think the introduction itself made it more evident that it was a representation of the Communist Party because there he is in his sort of uh, voice saying, this, uh, this film in Norway is a representation of the, I should tell you this has nothing to do with the Communist and, and of course it, it can, it, well, it becomes evident that yeah, this has everything to do with the Communist system. Yeah. Now, of course he had problems with those systems, but he also had the problems people had with him was that, well, was ironically, not just that he was sometimes an incarnation of an id, but actually that he too became slightly oppressive. When he did Goya, uh, uh, one of his lesser known films and then the last film that he ever were to direct, um, he had, they had, uh, he had he had originally wanted uh, it to be um, he had originally wanted a Czech composer to do all the music for it, um, but the production company they wanted a Spanish composer they thought it made more sense, and so he ended up saying, "Okay, we can well, we'll hire both of them, and then they can each do a score to the film, and and we'll vote." 
And it and, and we'll do it scene by scene. Is this the Czech version best or is it this? And so they did that. So he he bought two composers, essentially, that's pretty expensive. They made each their own score to the film. And scene by scene, they sat there voting in the editing room because he was always in the editing room in all, all of his films, like 12 hours a day, you know, smoking cigars and telling the editors what they were supposed to do. And they voted scene by scene, but he lost every vote. All of them wanted the Spanish. Uh, and then at one point he said, okay, so this is no longer a democracy. I'm George Bush, you can get out. <laughs> and then he chose the Czech composer. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, he had an he had an oppressive side himself, I guess. And and, and so they tell stories of him that are ultimately very fond, but also stories of uh, of a tough person, um, and especially Anne Jory Newman, who worked with him since taking off, has told stories that, uh, um, I mean. She references uh, a biography about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt that told him that he could be cold and warm and cynical and hard and also good. And all of these complexities represented, dualities represented in, in, in Milos Forman, I think. I don't know. I'm, it's not this as if I'm trying to do sort of a biographical reading of his films. I mean, I'm looking at them much like we've done today, but um, I do think that uh, it makes sense given his own experience and given how he was, that perhaps he was in many ways slightly transgressive. Mm. He was in many ways also very charismatic. Um, so he was the flirt. He was the transgressor. He was the oppressor too. Uh, you had to fulfill a role, and 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 I and I mean he could be very tough in that sense. Michael Jablo and Stanley Warnow told me uh, how he would also Lindsay Klingman actually told me how he would how he would sometimes take another editor into the editing room in order to see what uh, the first editor had done and review it negatively in front of that editor and make fun of that person to the point of that person being reduced to tears in order to change what it was supposed to be. And he would have Michael Jablo notice every, they had like, like it was 300, 400,000 feet of film on hair and on ragtime. It was just endless material and, and he wanted all of it. That was how he worked. So I guess some of those openings, some of those Delusian moments, they came from him shooting endless material. And then he would he would dial it in in editing, so it wasn't it was scripted certainly, but in a it truly was an example of of, of how you'd uh, I mean using editing as the as the final chance to rewrite. I mean you would have so much material that just cutting stuff out would be would be difficult, and and um, and that made that made perhaps for those gems of scenes where that which looks like a totally traditional shower film or that would look which looks like a totally traditional musical or suddenly breathes and becomes something else. I think that we've been so fortunate today to hear all of these tidbits from you um, and also the way that these interviews have influenced your, your thinking about Foreman. You've been 
privy to the thoughts and, and memories of so many different cast and crew. And you've been doing an incredible amount of work on that front. I know because we can see it on social media when we're so lucky that you share a few of these little glimpses into the, the lives of different cast and crew members. And, and tell me, how can we support you in the future? Do you have a title or a date for the book just yet? Or is it too early for that? Well, I, no, I don't have a, I don't have a, I, ha, I do have a title. It's called Between Two Worlds, Milos Foman in America. It was originally entitled Speaking of the Human Condition, but I've, uh, I've come to see that uh, the structure of it is that um, I'm, I'll, I'm looking at different aspects. We've talked about some of them today because you see the same aspects of his work naturally. So there is that idea of uh, the individual and the system, uh, um, something about the, 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 the it and the superego. So uh, I'm talking about those different sort of, um, it's in, instead of taking it film by film, I am, in, of course, introducing his entire filmography, but I'm sort of going by it more vertically than horizontally. So central themes across his work. And uh, I, I do see it as sort of a, uh, always sort of a, an interesting tug of war between opposites in his work. That's at least sort of a general idea. Uh, so that's why it ended up being not speaking of the human condition, but, uh, but between two worlds, Milos Forman in America, also because I focus more on his American films. Uh, it'll come out at some point in 2023, and I don't know exactly when, because um, I do have a few interviews to, I've uh, made 40 interviews at this point connected to it, but I do have a few interviews hopefully coming up in, in January, and I'm not sure if, if it'll end up being that way, but I'm still hoping uh, for Brad Dourif uh, to accept my, my numerous invitations. Um, because, I mean, Billy Bibbitt is such a central character, and he's actually, Brad Dourif has been part of, rack time too so he is uh, something of a key um, uh, michael douglas uh, agent has said that he might be interested in and in, 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 he would uh, be interesting to talk talk with him about uh, some of the problems connected to <laughs> to the shooting of cuckoo's nest um for example how haskell wexler was fired he was the original cinematographer before bill butler was brought in apparently because there was this whole fraction who wanted Milos Forman fired from the production, including Jack Nicholson, actually, um, which is perhaps also why Jack Nicholson, who's actually been friendly to ask uh, answer my 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 many invitations, oh, I only asked him three times, I think, but he's he's in a friendly way said no, and I think it's simply because while he loved doing that film, he wasn't too fond of Milos Forman actually. And so, so there's, of course, always that. But uh, hopefully Michael Douglas and Mandy Patinkin, who is a part of Racktime and, uh, and Brad Dourif, and, and then I'm hoping either either Woody Harrelson or, Don De, or Danny DeVito would, would perhaps want to be a part of it. I don't know. And I'm still waiting for answers to written questions uh, from Bill Butler. And I don't know if that'll happen. Bill Butler is... Uh, um, 102 or something to that effect at this point. He's an old man. Um, he was the one who shot Cuckoo's Nest. He also shot Jaws and a lot of stuff, but he's of course been retired for 12 years or something. But when those are done, I'll write it and then it has to go through as you all, as you both know, 
on the peer reviews uh, and, and it'll take a couple of months i'm sure so around summer next year i'm hoping yeah um and there is a lot of interesting stuff in it and there's uh, uh um, it won't be too anecdotal but there is also as i think i mentioned to you before we got going today fantastic whenever you get all of this interview material it, it sort of it opens up to different stories and different stories that could be told different ways depending on the publisher depending on um I think that there is a certain thing that I would I think of as loyalty to the subjects. I mean, so um, I'm not here to serve the interests of the people who have talked with me, yet I think it would be disloyal of me to use whatever they've said to me in order to say, like frame a narrative that might be tabloidy and interesting in a sensationalist manner about uh, Milos Forman as an exploitative and abusive man, because that wouldn't be a true story, but it would be a story that could sell books. Um, and I think I would be disloyal if I were to do that. So I'm not doing that. Um, and it wouldn't fit an academic publication, by the way, naturally. But there, are, and but there's also a, a kind of a funny anecdotal thing, and I don't know how much of that will be in the. I mean, there are some pretty funny stories that, uh, I mean, there's a, a very interesting story of how he taught and juried how to write a script based on uh, uh, on the opening from uh, taking off. And there's a very, very funny story about how um, everyone in America became, like they reacted so negatively to Larry Flint. So it became, controversial and politically problematic the film because it became seen as uh, as sort of a defense of pornography and uh, and he uh, what I've what I heard was that he was uh, this was from Larry Karasuski and Scott Alexander who wrote it was that he was very uh, disheartened by um, the political left because he thought he was in he would that was his peers he was in their group and they were the ones who disliked the film most vehemently because they thought of it as filth. And uh, what they ended up doing was that they, uh, they contacted one of his uh, uh, big nesters in Czech cinema at the time, uh, one of his good friends. And they, they, uh, they asked him, um, how do you say, if you don't get the joke, fuck you. How do you say that in Czech? And so, uh, and I have the original facts that he sent the Czech director to uh, Larry Karasuski and Scott Alexander, where he explained to them, okay, so you have to word it this way. And it's actually a Czech expression. And it means, a, it means something like crawl up in sight of a donkey's asshole. <laughs> joke. It's kind of harsh. And, so, and, then, and then they sent that to Variety and said that this is sort of a, a small ad for the film. <laughs> and Variety, given that they, um, well, for some odd reason, they didn't care to translate the stuff. They didn't care to check it at all. So I also have the print version from Variety where they, in what seems to be a, a sort of a, an appraisal or an ad, Flinder <laughs> says, if you don't get the joke, crawl up inside of a donkey's ass written in Czech. And, 
And when they then, then Milos Forman, he had what he would often do when he done a film, he would he would hibernate like a bear. He would he would he wouldn't like to be in. He would sort of crawl up inside of his almost like in fetal position, would hide from the world. But then when that variety came and he saw, he saw that ad, uh, well, he was a little <laughs> bit happy again. So <laughs> so I mean yeah. Um, I, I hope I'm able to sort of uh, tell a nuanced story of, an, of, of, a, of a director that I love a lot in a totally different way than, than David Lynch. I think he's much less enigmatic. Um, his films are perhaps more straightforward in many ways, um, but um, I think they're an, it, it, interesting. They, in interesting ways, they bridge the gap between American and European films and between different sensibilities and they tell very human stories oh, I like that yeah and very nuanced human stories yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah those nuances are worth going for I think so I I and I um, I had asked um, I don't know if you have something akin to this in France but we have something called the Folk University. <laughs> University lecturers that uh, make courses for everyone who's willing to pay. Yeah. So, uh, and they wanted me to do, um, I've often done something on David Lynch and sometimes on Coen Brothers. They wanted me to do um, something on Coen Brothers again. And I've done that a few times and it, it seems I would just be repeating myself and I said, well, okay, okay, you will have to find someone else to do that or uh, allow me to do something where I think I have something new to say and it would be perhaps about Milos Forman. And then I mentioned some of his big films in case they didn't know his name. And they, and they came back to me saying, well, it's a bit too niche. <laughs> niche are you kidding me like he's made one of the one of only three films to have won the five major academy awards cuckoo's nest are you kidding me that's not niche it's as broad as you get man and and larry flint is not niche man <laughs> it's not niche amadeus that's not niche air it's not niche it's, are you kidding me it's as as broad as you'll ever get when you're a European making films in the U.S., I know he's not cult, <laughs> and that's a different thing. I think for all, mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, I think David Lynch is 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 certainly less broad. Mm -hmm. I mean, but he has a, a very strong following. So there, of, of course, there's that. I mean, and you would know. Make a make a, a lecture on Blue Velvet, and we'll easily have 200 people who want to come uh, and talk about it. You can even do something on Inland Empire and you'll have 60 people come in by. So I think perhaps commercially they might be right. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure of it, but it saddens me. I think there are stories to be told about uh, that, that guy from Czechoslovakia who came to the US and ended up finally getting his papers and becoming a part of America, but ultimately always uh, saw America through the lens of an outsider and told stories about outsiders, very American stories, but also very Czech stories.
Thank you for listening to After Images. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow After Images podcast on social media.